offshore wind is it's it's, it's a wonderful resource. And I, I think you can learn a lot from Taiwan in terms of what to do. Hello, and welcome to Perspectives with Neil Up, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. You can find all of our past episodes on our blog site at pwnilo.com or by searching for Perspectives with Nilo on your favorite podcast app. Ireland's offshore wind industry marked a new milestone in May with the awarding of the first round of offshore wind projects. The government has set a target to deliver 7 gigawatts of electricity from offshore wind by 2030 and has been busy putting a framework in place to ensure successful delivery. However, Ireland is already lagging behind our European neighbours in what is fast becoming a highly competitive international industry. The Pacific Island nation of Taiwan has been deploying offshore wind generation since 2017. With a landmass half the size of Ireland and a population of over 23 million, the lack of space on land, together with abundant wind resources, means most major developments are offshore. Many EU states, like Denmark, are actively partnering with Taiwan for investment opportunities and technical expertise. During a recent trip to Taipei, I spoke with Angelica Ong, energy reporter specializing in offshore wind, the grid and nuclear power, about the history of wind power in Taiwan, how the government there has engaged with the industry and the learning so far. So Angelica, you're very welcome to Perspectives with Nilo. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. In fact, I'm so glad you are here since we're recording in my home. Uh, first question I had for you on, on, on wind power is, seeing as, you know, Taiwan is an island on the edge of the Pacific, there's uh, obviously abundant wind power available to Taiwan. What's the history of, of wind power in Taiwan from a high level? Well, um, actually, uh, Taiwan has some of the best wind uh, farm in the world because the wind just come ripping through the Taiwan Strait off the west coast of the island and uh, it's relatively shallow there so it's a great conditions for um, putting in uh, wind turbines and um, we kind of knew that we are going to need this electricity this offshore electricity because we're such a small island so um, we have 23 million people here in taiwan as opposed to five in ireland and uh, there's a lot of manufacturing it's really hard to get your energy use down um, when manufacturing is the basis of your GDP. And um, because we have limited land, we know that solar can only get us to a certain place and onshore wind can only get us so far. So we had to look offshore to expand our renewable energy portfolio. And Taiwan has been building offshore wind since 2017. Uh, how much, uh, how much uh, capacity has it built out so far? Well, so far, it's only been a few hundred megawatts. Um, we're still uh, in the ramping up process. Obviously, the lead time for the first offshore wind farms um, were longer. Uh, but I think we've made tremendous progress, given that it's only been a few years. Um, we have, um, I believe, it's like uh, th three that are uh, complete and uh, quite a few more that are in process and in the pipeline. And uh, so at the present time, uh, it, it's hundreds of megawatts mm -hmm. it's producing. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
what are the kind of typical uh, project sizes or allotments that that uh, make up that uh, that current contribution? Well, we've um, we're seeing wind development in rounds, and the first round, uh, the sizes were very small. We're talking about. Um, Let's see, Formosa One, the first wind farm in Taiwan, was just 125 megawatts. Um, but of course, in, as we progress to round two, the size of the wind farm got a lot bigger. And you started seeing um, anything up to, I believe, um, the biggest one, which um, is the Hailong project, which won't be constructed until 2025. Um, I, I think that's like 1.5 gigawatt, oh, gigawatt, something like that. Um, in that range. But the funny thing is, um, after round two, where we, we saw both smaller and bigger projects, a real range of sizes, in round three, um, uh, Taiwan's government uh, went back on that and uh, instituted a cap of 500 megawatts. Um, that might get shifted around a little bit because um, industry is saying that's way too small and there's no economy of scale. So I guess learnings will be had between now and, and future years to, to maybe resize it, is what you're saying. Well, 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 Neil, you know, you've worked in Taiwan, so you know that the way we Taiwanese do things can be like just to get it started, right? Get it started. It's like you, we, we, we will, um, and out of the APEC area, non-China APEC area market, this is what we're known for. It's the speed and the high level. Um, policy direction that is extremely ambitious. But um, unlike Japan, we, we never really bothered, for instance, we never really bothered to set up like a truly comprehensive framework before we got started. Um, and there's a good and bad in that. The, the, the bad is, of course, sometimes we are learning as we're doing, and then it forces a lot of course corrections, which can be tremendously expensive when you're talking about this like offshore wind farms, even a small one can, can it, it goes up to billions of US dollars. Um, but the good thing is, at least we got started. At least we have turbines in the water generating electricity, which Japan doesn't really have yet. In Ireland, we've had a lot of challenges with the planning process. There's been a lot of red tape in terms of getting permission uh, for, to, to actually deploy wind turbines offshore. Um, how has that been in Taiwan? Is that something that the government have uh, managed to uh, successfully resolve ahead of time, or are there like unexpected obstacles encountered? <laughs> well, um, I think that's normal all over the world to have permitting problems, and it is actually one of the biggest obstacles for the energy transition globally, worldwide, is how do we cut down on that red tape in a way that is still respectable to the environment and other in Taiwan, unfortunately. Um, we really have had our fair share of issues with permitting. Um, and um, the, the problem is um, we chose this method, which again, got things off the ground pretty quickly where um, I'm going to elide some, uh, you know, because of course there were differences through the different rounds, but basically we took an approach, which is you, the developer, you kind of go out and prospect and you can choose this, this area. Like you want this area. Okay. You have to do all the, um, 
you know, you have to all do a site inspection, you have to do all the, you know, you have to count the animals, the birds, the, you know, all that sort of thing, and then you submit your application. And if somebody else wants that same patch, <laughs> you have a conflict, then um, you both have to do all the work, and then um, the person with the most optimal bid wins. Now, in a way, this is advantageous for developers because um, in most places, uh, you know, the seabed lease for, uh, can be tremendously costly. They usually, usually, I think, um, more, most countries choose to, for the government to do more of the front end work and then bid the, um, the parcel. And uh, the good thing is, of course, it's less work for the developers. They don't have to go and prepare all that information to, to show that it is a, it is a suitable parcel. But then um, the problem is you might have a lot of competition in the bidding process, and they, those leases end up being extremely expensive. Um, I can't say that the Taiwanese way of doing things is is better or worse. I can certainly think of a lot of problems with this method, but it did allow us to get off the ground very quickly and um, with a uh, without too much government involvement, which always slows everything down. And in terms of the commitment from the develop the successful developers that are chosen, um, do they have to guarantee a price for the electricity they produce? Uh, for example, in Ireland's uh, latest round of offshore wind, uh, the average price of 86 euro per megawatt hour is what the government tell us has been um, agreed on um, as part of the, the, the bidding process by, by these uh, companies. What, how does that work in Taiwan? Well, Taiwan's different. As far as I understand it, in, in Ireland has uh, electricity markets. Um, in Taiwan, there's just, um, you know, one state-run electricity company, and they set the price of electricity. And um, so there isn't a market for um, the offshore wind uh, developers to guarantee the price of. So what they do is they settle a price in advance with the off-taker. Uh, before they even build the farm. And they do this for the 20-year lifetime of the farm. And they have to do this so that the banks will lend them the money. Um, so back in round one and two, this was done through uh, what's called an FIT, a feed-in tariff. It's a mechanism that was actually pioneered in Germany. And the idea is you have to um, make it worth their while for the for the developers who's going first, because they're encountering the most difficulties. You can price down after that, but you have to support the ones that are willing to go first. So um, usually the feed-in tariff is higher in the beginning and uh, slowly comes down. And the way Taiwan successfully attracted a lot of world-class developers to Taiwan was um, it, at one point it had one of the most generous FITs in the world. And that, especially around 2015, that really got all the developers' attention because um, the European market was, was, was down during that time. It was more saturated, and um, the demand hasn't come back uh, like it did re recently due to the uh, Ukraine war and uh, new urgency <laughs> for renewable energy. 
I noticed also that uh, uh, Taiwan in round three has uh, brought in some localization requirements. Basically, I think you wrote in your unredacted.biz blog that uh, there's a 27-item local content requirement in round three to use uh, local, I guess, uh, supplied materials uh, and components to, for, for these uh, successful bidders. Um, is that viewed as a positive or a negative thing? Well, I can tell you this. If you want cheap energy, for goodness sake, don't do what Taiwan did. Because not only did we institute a localization requirement, we made it pretty onerous um, because of a lack of flexibility. So out of these 27 items that have to be um, made in Taiwan, at least in part, I think that 60% of these 27 items have to be made in Taiwan, um, some of them only have one Taiwanese-based supplier. And let me tell you, if you're the only supplier of this item, like, how does that affect your decision-making process when you're setting the price? So um, there's some real lack of competitiveness. And um, that, I think, has led to Taiwan um, ending up building some of the most expensive offshore wind farms in the world. I can tell you that I'm not against localization. I think it's always good when you're investing this much in a basic infrastructure for the industry to give back to the country that's hosting them and to give back especially to the community that have to live with these turbines. And you know, I personally think they're beautiful, but what's important is that the whole community have to think they're beautiful and that they're an asset, not a liability. So that, that buy-in can be generated with localization requirements, um, but the thing to do is to make them flexible. And uh, to, to do that, it's, you can look to your, to your neighbors, to the UK. Um, they have their localization requirement. It is a percentage-based localization requirement. Uh, quite frankly, I think they could have even, like, you know, um, they, they could have done a little bit more, um, but uh, uh, that enabled them to build out their, uh, their wind farms very quickly while, while also encouraging local development. You mentioned earlier that there's a lot of industry in Taiwan, and a lot of us in, in the West would associate Taiwan with high tech and a lot of uh, you know, development of technology like that. Do you think this, these localization requirements are driving uh, some activity uh, to, to, to in R&D and other areas related to wind power that may be beneficial longer term? Maybe hard to see the results in the short term, but uh, do you think that will benefit? Um. I think that has certainly driven a tremendous amount of activity. We are um, making all sorts of things that we wouldn't be making in Taiwan absent of this localization policy. And we're talking about pretty major pieces of kit. Um, we're talking about um, enormous offshore wind foundations. We're talking about tower pieces, nacelle pieces. Um, one thing that I really wish Taiwan did um, is uh, I really wish they took a look at what are the specific um, area we could see synergy and where Taiwan could benefit from um, our existing strength. Because um, a lot of what I think of as 
localization that's inefficient is where um, we're trying to build up an industry where Taiwan is um, has already lost on the starting line. Um, in particular, I think I'm thinking of the um, the building of the uh, giant underwater foundations because we don't have the enormous amount of of labor that's required to high quality welders are going to be in huge demand if you want to develop an offshore wind industry um, and, and actually make the kit yourself. Um, we don't have that. We don't have the access to ginormous amounts of steel and we don't have the enormous amount of hinterland near the harbor that's needed to um, make it as competitive as, say, the Koreans. But then again, I feel like with industrial policies, this is a lot of, always a lot of short-term pain, and you you don't really know at the, in the middle of it whether there's going to be long-term gain. For instance, the Koreans they are really strong in shipbuilding because they did support that industry early on. And you mentioned earlier that uh, most of the wind farms in Taiwan at the moment are on the west coast, uh, which is in the Taiwan Strait, where the, the water is shallower. Um, and I presume th these are like fixed turbines that are anchored to, to the, are fixed on the ocean floor, basically. Well, for now they are. Um, as you get closer and closer towards the center of the strait and even beyond, um, you're going to get, um, finally, it's going to be too deep to support uh, turbines that's bottom fixed um, so right now, maybe 60 meters is as deep as you can go and still um, use fixed bottom construction. Beyond that, you have to go into floating. And um, that's really tricky because um, basically we know it works because uh, we're taking a lot from the oil and gas business. They pioneered those floating platforms and they used it successfully for many years, even decades. But the problem is, uh, if you have an oil and gas platform, um, you need one or one per drilling spot. With offshore wind, you need a floating platform for every single turbine. So all of a sudden, what was economical when you just needed a few, it becomes massively uneconomical. So this means that um, we need to find a way to massively price down um, these, these foundations. And um, personally, that makes me nervous as hell because people are making massive investment decisions already based on that technology maturing. But um, my friends in the industry um, tell me to calm down, and they've done this before. Like it used to be that the foundations are are like you know if you just took took a took a stick and stuck it into the ground. It's called the monopile for obvious reasons. When that got to be um, too limited, they developed something called a jacket, which is like way more complicated, and uh, it's more like a like a three or four-legged stool, but enormous. And uh, they, the development, that development process was also um, very aggressive, and they managed to make it work. And they project that this is going to be the same going to floating. They've 
demonstrated that it's it's engineeringly engineering is feasible now they just have to cost it down yeah i mean the, the other thing that i was curious about on the floating side is once you have the floating technology at an affordable price then uh, it opens up new areas where you can deploy and I know Taiwan's east coast, which faces the Pacific, obviously it's uh, a much deeper, because there's a shelf there, right in the ocean, it's much deeper water. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I may be wrong, but I have to ask you, is there more sustainable wind energy on the east coast than there would be on the west coast? Well, first of all, um, first of all, just by going deeper into the, the ocean, you're getting more stability the winds are going to be stronger and they're going to be more constant which means that you can get your capacity factor up um so we're definitely developing into deeper waters but funnily enough it's still mostly going to be on the western side and that's simply um due to the due to the way the winds are blowing and uh, on the eastern side it's not just deeper but your wind quality is not going to be as good. Also, um, it there's less industrial development on the eastern part of Taiwan. But um, if I get to like go off the reservation for one second, um, because in addition to offshore wind, like one of the technologies that's so dear to my heart is uh, is called OTEC, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, and I actually believe that the eastern side of Taiwan has just tremendous potential for developing that energy because ocean thermal energy conversion, uh, very simply, it takes the uh, thermal difference between very deep water and the warmer water and the shallow water, and uh, they use that to drive a turbine eventually with, with ammonia. So um, in Taiwan, because you have that huge drop off that makes it impossible to put in uh, wind farms cheaply, you have access to both warmer surface water and very cold deep water at the same time. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, within within the next decade or so, like something can happen there. That's a very, I mean, I think uh, from an Irish perspective, because uh, I think our Irish economic area where we can deploy wind turbines or maybe where we can deploy anything, this this, this new technology you mentioned also, um, maybe that's also something Ireland should look at because I think uh, being on the edge of the Atlantic, I'm sure we have access to deep water where that may also be effective. Well, the, the, the wonderful thing with Ireland is you guys have so much offshore wind to discover still. Uh, now, um, OTEC, it's a very immature technology. I personally love it, uh, but for Ireland, I think getting started on offshore wind is a wonderful opportunity. Can I ask uh, again about the offshore wind in Taiwan? Uh, are there many foreign uh, partnerships in the area of wind technology? I was speaking to the Danish representative office here in, in Taiwan at their EU and Taiwan Day a few weeks ago. And they mentioned to me that one of the reasons they have an office here in Taiwan is to facilitate these exchanges, these technical uh, exchanges, in that they, they see particular relevance in, in uh, engaging with Taiwan. So are, are there many uh, foreign companies and, and foreign jurisdictions engaging with Taiwan on wind power? Absolutely, and we absolutely must rely on them. I think one of the most correct things that the Taiwanese government has done was to set 
um, a very clear policy direction very early, so that um, it made the these um, offshore wind companies um, feel safe to come here and invest, and truly make roots here and grow. Um, because actually, offshore wind is a tremendously young technology. Uh, <laughs> I would I would say it's, it's only really twenty years old. If you go back further than that. Um, sure, there's some beginnings, but um, people were basically still arguing on over whether it's worth it, because it is, after all, an in incredibly challenging endeavor. As a result of its relative uh, youth as an industry, just the, the kind of people with experience, somebody who's actually completed a wind farm project as a package manager or developer or um, anything, they're really super rare, and they are um, rightly hot commodity. And the way these developers work is by going from country to country, project to project. And um, it, I think it, it's, it's really, really hard to get a wind farm project off the ground in any country without the help of one of these experienced developers typically from, from Europe, um, typically, not all, but typically from Europe, especially from Denmark, from Germany, um, those areas, yeah. Uh, one of the things you alluded to earlier was that a lot of countries in the EU have become more concerned about their sources of energy since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, um, th th you know, they're trying to wean off dependence on Russian oil and gas. We've seen in Taiwan how the CCP could potentially put a blockade on Taiwan in their military exercises, for example, after Nancy Pelosi's visit last August. So um, my question is, you know, what's Taiwan's thinking as regards this uh, energy independence concept and maybe, a, a, you know, wind power being part of it? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, Taiwan is currently um, both shamefully and dangerously reliant on fossil fuel. And unfortunately, that's that's going to be the case going um, quite a bit into the future. We still burn quite a lot of coal, um, 30, 40% coal. Um, gas, it, it's rising from, you know, I think, is it 40% is now? And we want to get it up to 50% um, to try and reduce coal. And unfortunately, we made the really foolish decision, in my mind, of getting rid of nuclear power. Um, that was a stable source of energy that um, is not only low carbon, but it you know you can store the fuel on site. So you're not reliant on LNG vessels coming into Taiwan. You have to understand right now with the amount of receiving capacity and storage facility in Taiwan, we can only hold about um, you know, seven to 14 days of, of LNG on the island at any one time. I think that leaves us tremendously vulnerable in a blockade scenario. Um, and of course we want more offshore wind and solar and geothermal, um, but right now, um, all of this excess capacity, it's not enough just to make up for all the nuclear that we're losing. So um, 
I my hope is that Taiwan can see the light on this and realize we need more renewables, we need more nuclear, and let's get off the LNG and the coal. Um, but politically, um, there's no support really for nuclear, so it looks like um, that that makes our offshore wind and solar resources even more precious because they're you can't you know China's not going to be able to stop the wind or the sun. Uh, is there any other way the government are incentivizing this this move to sustainable energy? Well, the the government, I would say, has been extremely crafty in drafting Taiwan's uh, very successful tech companies uh, in their quest uh, to uh, boost renewable energy, because um, well, basically all the all the big tech companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook. Um, and many more besides. They've made very ambitious climate goals. Um, they've mostly signed on to the RE100 pledge at different levels of aggressiveness. And to be a part of their supply chain starting as early as 2030 in the cases of Apple and Google, I believe, you have to be able to show that you produced, for instance, TSMC, you have to show that the chips that you're selling to Apple uh, were made with re renewable energy. And the largest bulk form of renewable energy that you can purchase in Taiwan are going to be from those offshore wind farms. And uh, the latest round of auctions that took place last year, uh, the round 3.1 auctions, um, the average bid price uh, for, for the power um, you know, you talk about you, you talk about the price of Ireland uh, yeah. going up to uh, you know uh, what is it eighty six uh, euro per megawatt hour. Yeah. So I don't even have to do the conversion between euros and Taiwan dollars because the bid price was zero, and the reason why, of course, they're not doing these wind farms out of charity or the goodness of their hearts, but the reason they bid zero was so that they can secure those projects and then turn around, instead of selling it to the, the power to Thai power, they sell it to um, TSMC or um, whatever Taiwanese tech company. And those sums are not um, disclosed, but uh, we can surmise that it's at least enough to make it worth their while. I, I think my my experience when it comes to when it comes to Taiwan is that um, the offshore wind is it's just, it's a wonderful resource and um, I I think you can learn a lot from Taiwan in terms of what to do uh, which is what Taiwan did right um, getting things started off early setting a ambitious and clear policy direction so that you can attract people to come and play. Um, but I think we can also learn about what Taiwan did wrong, which is not thinking ahead to having a complete policy framework. And also, um, to me, what Taiwan did wrong is maybe like um, going too heavy on the localization. Uh, I think it's, it's great to insist that developers uh, give a certain percentage back to the community. You, you can say, okay, 60% of what you buy uh, should should be connected to the local economy the, or the Irish economy in some way, or maybe smaller. I don't know. It depends on what Ireland has to offer in terms of uh, 
in terms of manufacturing. Um, I think you can do that, but you, you, you can't insist that, well, well this, this gadget, you have, to, you have to make it here. I, I think that's, that's not the way the world works. I would really much rather see a um, uh, focus on getting costs down. Or maybe, as you said, uh, focus on like strengths in terms of like not not forcing uh, development of, of certain technology, exactly. but focusing on the ones where that you can you have a lead, like right. you said, you have a lead start, or you have the capability, and focusing on that. Absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely, that is absolutely the way to go: is to focus on your strength and work focus on working together. Because actually, if you look at all the all the not even Denmark does it alone. The reason why the offshore wind industry was able to rise so quickly and to such a large scale is because they took talent and they took manufacturing capabilities from the country that's in the best place to, to service that thing. And um, actually, you know what? Ireland, part of the EU, so I don't even know, like under the EU rules, how much a local preference uh, your government would be allowed to show, but what it can certainly do is to encourage uh, complementary investment and uh, to, to kind of add, add Ireland's strength to the global offshore wind supply chain. That's Angelica Ong, who is a Taiwan-based energy reporter specializing in offshore wind, the grid and nuclear power. My sincere thanks to Angelica for sharing her valuable insights with us on Perspectives with Nilo. You can find out more about her work on our blog site at pwnilo.com, where we have linked Angelica's website and some additional references for you to dive deeper. As mentioned earlier, although still very young, offshore wind is fast becoming a highly competitive international industry. Given the high demand for expertise and knowledge, the benefits of collaborating with other countries like Taiwan cannot be overstated. It's interesting to note that Danish multinational energy company Orsted, who recently signed a wind power deal with the ESB in Ireland, are in the process of delivering their largest project outside Europe in Taiwan. This is their second project there, with a third in the pipeline. Definitely an area with a lot going on, and a topic we hope to revisit in the future. In the meantime, you can follow Perspectives with Nilo on Spotify, iTunes, and most podcast apps as well as on Instagram and Twitter. And we'd really appreciate a like or a follow if you enjoy our content. Well, that's where we leave it for the moment. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánach spanacht. <laughs>